Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. This weekend at Serenby Art Farm, tap virtuoso Andrew Nemmer will perform Rising to the Tap. This is Dance as Memoir. From Nemmer's family departing war-torn Lebanon to his childhood in New Jersey, being bullied as an outsider, to being mentored by tap legends Savian Glover, Jimmy Slide, and Gregory Hines. Later in the hour, director Adam Copeland and Andrew Nemmer talk about the production and exploring identity through dance on stage. First... The annual David Driscoll Prize has been awarded to the esteemed art scholar and curator, Dr. Adrian L. Childs. Each year with this prize, the High Museum celebrates an artist or art scholar who has contributed significantly to the field of African-American art. Dr. Childs will be honored at the 17th Annual Driscoll Prize Dinner on April 29th. Ahead of that special event, she joins me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Well, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Dr. Childs, congratulations. When you heard you were selected as this year's Driscoll Prize winner, what was your initial reaction? I was very surprised and delighted and a bit melancholy because David Driscoll will not be here to share this moment with me. I think mixed emotions is what I would say, but I was very surprised because the, the Driscoll Prize has been something I've known about for many years. It's almost 20 years since they started this prize. And I always think of the people who win it as being so prominent and, and visible. And, and sometimes you just don't think of yourself in that way. Well, you are in that pantheon now. <laughs> you earned both your master's in art history and Ph.D. at the University of Maryland, where Professor Driscoll taught for many years. Did you study with him? 
He was a mentor to me. When I came in, he really wasn't teaching as much, but he did sit on my dissertation committee. But I studied with him in that I worked with him as a student and as a professional when I finished. I curated exhibitions of his work. I curated uh, or helped in the curation of a, an exhibition of his collection. And so in that way, I learned a tremendous amount from him. I think even more so than had we been in the classroom. Hmm. Yeah, I thought you seemed young to have been in the classroom with him. You've spent most of your career examining the ways in which race is represented in both American and European art. Can you give us some examples of your research discoveries that have been most outstanding or even surprising to you? <laughs> oh, that's an interesting question. Hmm. Well, when I first started looking into images of Black women, I think it was, I started out looking at images of Black women in European art when I was studying at the University of Maryland. One thing that was surprising to me was very few people were writing about that. I would find many images in books uh, by important artists. There was a uh, sort of a silence, an elephant in the room, if you will, about why Black women were depicted and how and what did that have to do with sort of the history of colonialism and slavery. So that was always surprising to me. And in terms of discoveries, that's that's interesting too. Right now I'm writing, I'm thinking a lot about decorative arts. That's one of the avenues I started pursuing in terms of this image of Black figures in European material and visual culture. And I'm surprised to find that um, many of these sort of luxury objects that you might find in a, you know, an English manor home or, or a very uh, Parisian, you know, mansion were owned by people who really, really did have true links to slaves, slave culture, the Black Atlantic, that were really um, making their fortunes off the labor of enslaved Africans. And when I started looking into these objects, I never expected to be able to find, if you will, a smoking gun or these links. And you don't, you don't really necessarily try to find that, but I was very surprised to find that some of the objects that I'm studying are parts of collections that were built, I guess, with the wealth that was gained by these enslaved bodies in real life. And then they find enslaved figures in their homes <laughs> under lamps and under tables. Oh. Really interesting. And, and it's distressing as well. Oh, it's terribly disturbing. And I should note for listeners, your forthcoming book is Ornamental Blackness the Black figure in European decorative arts, which you're speaking about now. As recently as 15 years ago, my husband and I were in Vienna. He had a professional meeting, and we were staying at a very fine hotel. And I just gasped to see one of those lamps you're describing. And yet, I guess you're saying we can still find these ornamental pieces in European venues today. Oh, yes. And in American museums and in American 
historic homes, but it was fashionable in the 18th and 19th century to have one of these objects and they were considered exotic and they're linked to black labor, although apparent then and now was sort of mitigated by their, sometimes they were one of a kind. At one point, certainly the earlier ones were made of precious materials. And so their status as luxury objects kind of shrouded, if you will, these links to the disturbing history of Black labor. And now they are relics from a time gone by. Uh, what's interesting is they start getting reproduced even more and, and I guess a little bit more kitschy, if you will, as they start coming out of Venice in the late 18th and 19th century. But Americans coming to Europe wanting to mimic European grandeur would purchase them as well. So you find them in American homes. So I think it's even more interesting to think about what, what how they may have operated in an American home in the South before the Civil War, that kind of thing. So it's, a, it's an interesting topic. And it kind of dovetails to a certain extent with my study of African-American art, because sometimes these things are objects are reacted to by particularly contemporary Black artists like Fred Wilson, if you will. There's a chandelier at the High Museum by Fred Wilson. It's a Black chandelier made of Murano glass. So it's a Venetian product. And so I think a lot of this interest in the decorative and, and this underbelly of a European representation is what Fred Wilson tries to think about in his very conceptual chandelier. But the Black um, glass is... Is, is in some ways linked to those histories of representation that I study on both sides. So there are lots of links between African-American art and the way Africans have been represented in European art, particularly, like I said, with, with uh, contemporary artists who look back and try to come to terms with or resist those narratives. Yeah, because how can you come to terms with the inhumanity of it, no matter how find the materials. Right. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guest is Adrian L. Childs, the recipient of this year's High Museum David Driscoll Prize. You are an associate of the W.E.B. Du Bois Research Institute at Harvard University, as well as an adjunct curator for the Phillips Collection in Washington, D.C. How has your research informed your role as a curator? Hmm. Well, that's, that's interesting. I did an exhibition for the Phillips that opened in 2020, February. Hmm. That exhibition was called Rifts and Relations, African-American Artists and the European Modernist Tradition. And in that exhibition, I looked at both this European tradition of representing Black figures and certainly European modernism writ large, its debt to African art, and how African-American artists reacted to that very powerful force of modernism in the 20th century. So that kind of brought those, my research together. And it was a lot of fun putting it together. I had a wonderful, the staff at the Phillips was terrific. This was before I came and ad, became an adjunct curator. And it's really a group project put together a very interesting show that was really on display for two 
glorious weeks <laughs> until uh, the COVID shut us down after about three years of, of planning and coordination research, but they were able to reopen toward the end of the year in a limited fashion. But having said that, this was a really interesting project. I've received, I've lectured on it quite a bit. I'm still getting asked to lecture on it because it does bring together these stories that art historians tell, tell themselves and tell, and, and, and looks at it in a, uh, with a different lens. Mm. So you talked about curating different Driscoll exhibitions. You were a curator at the David Driscoll Center at the University of Maryland for several years, and your work there was extensive. Yes. Given Professor Driscoll's legacy and presence at the university, what can you tell us about curating evolution five decades of printmaking by David Driscoll? Well, that was a special project for me. I was asked to give a paper one year at the Porter Colloquium at Howard, which is probably the longest standing conference, yearly conference or symposium, if you will, on African-American art named after James Porter, who was Driscoll's mentor when he was in at yes. Howard University. So this is a real legacy there. Anyway, I was I gave a paper there just like anybody else, and I focused on Driscoll's prints. And when I finished my dissertation, one of the things that, and I got hired at the Driscoll Center, one of the things that the current director asked was, let's let's look at that, that material and develop into a, an exhibition. And so I worked on that with David Driscoll in his studio where there were many, 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 many prints. And we just had a really great time again, working with the artist and someone who's an art historian and putting together the exhibition. And I had a great lesson on printmaking and all the different forms of printmaking. And of course, Driscoll was a printmaker. I mean, primarily, Driscoll was primarily a painter and a collagist. And he didn't even realize how many prints he had done over the years and many prints he would execute, tear them up and put them in his finished collages. So he has a long and extensive history in printmaking that he he was wondering, well, how are we going to do an exhibition? And we, we had more than we could even handle. So it was a great learning experience for me to learn about, uh, and he would print with anything, you know, stick something together, two things together, and then boom, run a piece of paper over and then there's a print. So (laughs) we had a good time looking back at that legacy in his life. How special that must have been for you. Since the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement and our reckoning with racial injustice in 2020, have you noticed an impact in the art world, whether increased attention to museum exhibitions or greater focus on Black artists? Without a doubt. I started feeling it personally in my own career because I was getting many, many requests to speak on projects of mine, to speak on my book in progress, getting requests to co-curate, to curate, to contribute an essay, and uh, many institutions that I'd never heard from before. So I'm thinking that many institutions are looking for Black voices, Black curators in ways that they hadn't done before. 
yeah, it was really good. It also took a lot of time away from my focusing on my book, but I, I felt like I wanted to participate in this flowering, if you will, of consciousness. And I wanted to have my voice heard as well. So I did say yes to a lot of requests. So I noticed that in my own career. I also noticed, of course, the increase in interest in Black artists in, in terms of the art market. And that impacts the um, museum community as well. There's an inverse or relate. I don't even know if I would call it inverse. There's a relationship, a symbiotic relationship between the market and the museum. And it's interesting to see how that is going and it continues to flourish in many ways. So I think it's all in all very good. I always am very cautious. I wonder, is it a bubble? Will, will the bubble burst or is this just a very visible correction that will sort itself out, uh, but not necessarily a bubble. So we shall see how it all turns out. Well, let's hope it's not a bubble. Yes. And it is a long overdue correction. Sadly, in April of 2020, David Driscoll died from COVID-19. In 1977, he said, we don't go around saying white art, but I think it's very important for us to keep saying black art until it becomes recognized as American art. Do you think that goal has been achieved? And it's complicated to separate because we certainly should take full pride in this body of work as American art. There's also something very specific to its creation and creators. Where do you think we are in terms of what David Driscoll said? Oh, that is the question of the hour or the, the decade, let's say. I think that in many ways, the artists, the contemporary artists, many of them are young, who are out there working in the field now are driving that story because uh, many of them want to claim Black art or African-American art or many different ways of, of putting it, but making sure that Blackness is forefronted in how their art is categorized or conceived or consumed because of the subject matter, because of the assertive nature, let's just say, of their attention to Blackness and how race impacts their life, American life. I mean, there are many ways of looking at it. Certainly, identity is, is an important aspect of what many of them are doing. So they're saying, no, 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 it does matter. <laughs> I don't think we have gotten to the point where there's such a thing as being colorblind in terms of art. Now, there are many artists whose work does not rally around racial issues, but they are Black artists, but their work might be focused on form, color, line, some other kind of concept. And the, the freedom to be able to do that without having to account for your Blackness is very important to them. So it is a complicated situation. And it's interesting now that we're moving to the term Black art. We moved away from that to African-American art. And when I taught these courses on the subject matter, I call my course art by African-Americans. 
instead of African-American art, because I felt like the, that art itself, the objects, whatever they are now, they're not necessarily even objects anymore, but art itself is not erased. It might reflect race, race might be the subject matter, it might not, but in the end, it's whatever materials are being put together. The person who's making it, however, let the stories that I tell in class are about how Black artists have navigated this scene, uh, the art world over the last two, you know, two centuries, and uh, what does that mean? It is a complicated thing, and I, I'd hate to limit it or reduce it down to Black art, white art. Curator and art scholar, Adrian L. Childs. She's the recipient of this year's David Driscoll Prize. She'll be honored at the 17th annual Driscoll Prize dinner tomorrow at the High Museum, April 29th. You can find out more about her achievements on our website, wabe.org. Coming up, Rising to the Tap at Serenby's Art Farm this weekend. We'll talk with tap virtuoso Andrew Nemmer and director Adam Copeland. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Tap virtuoso Andrew Nemmer lets audiences tap into something special with his show Rising to the Tap, which blends history, autobiography, music, and of course some amazing dance moves. Flying Carpet Theatre Company presents the show in partnership with the Art Farm at Serenby tomorrow and Saturday. Andrew Nemmer joins us now via Zoom with director Adam Copeland of Flying Carpet Theatre Company. Welcome back to City Lights. Thank you so much for having us. It's such a pleasure to be here. Andrew, it's been three years since we last spoke. So hard to believe. You performed Rising to the Tap at Theatrical Outfit in 2019. Has this show evolved since that performance? I would say yes and no. (laughs) How so? With the challenge of just the, the global situation over the past couple of years, 
having a live show has been really challenging just to see where it could happen. We've been thinking about it a lot and we're very excited to have the opportunity to have it on its legs again. But I can say that I've changed a lot in the past three years. And to that end, uh, my relationship to the show has changed. As we're bringing it in Serenby, we continue to find new things in the show that we're able to, to focus on and, and share. What are some of those things? Indeed, this has been such a transformative few years for so many of us, for the world at large. How has that informed your show and your relationship to the material in your show? Yeah, that's a great question. Adam and I have had numerous conversations about some of the things that were initially very challenging in the piece for me to even come to deal with. Uh, I talk about really hard conversations that I've had with some of my mentors over the years, some realizations of my own perception of, of life and kind of assumptions that I've had to encounter as I've grown and as I grew up as a tap dancer. And I don't, I don't know if you've experienced this kind of when something changes in your life and you go back to a story, sometimes the meaning of that story changes for you. And I've, I've definitely experienced that with this show most recently. Andrew is one of the elite tap dancers in America. He, his upbringing and his tutelage and his legacy is not unique, but there just aren't that many people that went through what he went through. He came up as one of the young dancers in Savion Glover's crew and trained with that, you know, through, through his teen years. And during that era, it meant that both through that and around that, he was also getting inputs from many of the great and legendary figures in tap dance, including Gregory Hines and Jimmy Slide. And what this means for Andrew in a craft where legacy is very important is that Andrew can trace his lineage all the way back to the origins of tap dance. And what it also means is that Andrew has this incredible story to tell about his coming through this era and sort of the ups and downs of what it meant to be a child of people escaping from war-torn Lebanon and being kind of tossed around the world in that way. And then he shows up in the U.S. feeling very much like an outsider and, and with a lot of identity crises. And then a lot of those melt away in the warm embrace and the warm community of tap dance. One of the things, even a few weeks ago, that Andrew and I spent a lot of time talking about, there's a a place late in the show where Andrew speaks with one of the elder statesmen of TAP, a man named Jimmy Slide, who was a mentor of his. And the two of them had a very open but a very challenging conversation about whether or not there is such a thing as, quote, black dance, which is very impactful in the overall show because Andrew is, you know, he can speak to this as well. Andrew is of Lebanese descent and 
is a white fellow and his crew for most of his upbringing and tutelage were African-American folks. And so some of the stories that Andrew tells in the show have to do with that navigation of worlds and identities. And so in this late point in the show, Andrew has this very challenging conversation with Jimmy Slide and what's underneath it, all of those emotions continue and continue to be processed because it was this powerful moment in time that Andrew still thinks about. Hmm. And indeed, emotion is central to much of what has unfolded in the past two years and continues to unfold about cultural appropriation. Whose story is it? Who has the right to tell a story? Is that the sort of thing you have been pondering and experiencing, Andrew? Yeah, for sure. I think it's a it's a really challenging position for me personally because I was brought into this wonderful community. One of the things that we share in the show, stories that I've experienced are experiences in which the division of race, the, the, the natural kind of line that gets drawn, affected personal relationships that I had. And it's all intertwined, right? It's the personal relationships are connected to my experience of the dancing. My experience of, of the dancing reminds me of the personal relationships. And so the, the joy and the pain that comes from living life together with people is, is all there when I come to lace up my shoes and dance. How do I honor the people that gifted me with the, the knowledge that I have, the foundational knowledge that I have in the craft work, in tap dancing, while also kind of moving forward in my own life and in the current cultural context and cultural moment that that we're all in. Hmm. Yeah, tap dance originated at the crossroads of European and African traditions. You demonstrate that, you address it in the show. Would it be a spoiler to speak about Savian Glover? I can say, without spoiling anything for the audience, I can say that Savion was a very instrumental person in my upbringing as a dancer and as a, as a person. I was with him, working with him, hanging out with him when I was a teenager, you know, very, very formative years in my life. He was probably, I would say, if not the first and only older brother figures that I had in my life. And I'm an only child. And for the only children out there, the desire to have the, the, like a sibling community or, or that kind of experience, I feel is uh, something that we, some of us might carry to come into the tap dance community. And at the time, Savion was very, very much the leader of the, the younger generation of dancers uh, recognized uh, for his talent and for his position. And to be very, very close with him and the other dancers in his circle was very, very special. Ultimately, he lets you down or breaks your heart. 
Yeah, as happens. At the time, I thought my world was going to end. But it's something that even in, even in writing the show with Adam and sharing the show in some of its earlier productions, I've learned that feelings of heartbreak, of rejection, even feelings of betrayal are not uncommon in in others lives and to that end it you know there's a there's almost a greater sadness that the experience that i've had is not uncommon that others have had to you know experience it work through it but there's also almost a a responsibility i feel to share that part of the story that as much as my life has been blessed and charmed there are very very hard things that happen when people get together and they try and work out really hard things in this case the fact that you're white and he didn't want to include you in an all-black show yeah exactly well and there's a lot of complexity around bringing the noise bringing the funk the time period and so as, as much as it broke my heart, where I sit today, I don't lay 100% of the blame on Savion. He himself was in his mid-20s when all of this was, was going on. I also don't think, Andrew, that you have judgment about, you know, the artistic choices per se of bringing the noise, bringing the funk. Not at all. I think one of the things that's really clear in the show is how intertwined professional life and personal life is for Andrew. Like some people would be like, oh, I wasn't in a show, I'll be in the next show. But when you're 17, 18, 19, in that era, what your friend group is and who, what, who gets to be in the show is such a porous line. And that's part of what the show is about. And part of Andrew's growth is being able to separate out those things. So, I mean, I, I think... A lot of the pain isn't about an artistic choice so much as what happens when an artistic choice impacts personal relationships. If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with director Adam Copeland and tap virtuoso Andrew Nemmer. It seems ironic that here you were, you finally felt welcomed into this community, a brotherly one at that, as you describe it, Andrew. And maybe this is a good point for you to talk about how you were bullied for your background. Sure, I'm happy to. I was a short, pudgy, younger than everybody else kid in high school. And I had a particular student in my, in my same class who took a liking to chasing me around and kind of punching on me. I had groups of underclassmen who also took a liking to interrupting my normal course of walking whenever they saw fit. And there was a lot of verbal bullying going on as much as my parents made choices, very specific choices to try and to try and help my ability to assimilate. You know, I have a last name that is very unique. At the time, 
you know, the idea of being from anywhere in the Middle East and being a terrorist was something high school kids like to latch onto. And some racial epithets were slung my way. Mm. I mean, adolescence is hard enough. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I wonder if I might play for you a little bit of a piece Andrew co-wrote with Or Matthias. Or is our composer. Andrew is the choreographer and also the kind of conceiver in many ways of these musical numbers. And I wanted to see if it might make sense for you to hear a little of this and hear the way Andrew layers his tap over the number. Eastern sounding music, just fantastic modes we don't usually encounter in Western style. Yes, or really what he was trying to do in that number is, you know, I guess, and they had discussed, you know, I'm, I'm struggling, I'm starting, you know, am I this kid trying to fit in? Do, do I have a Middle Eastern background? So in the music, you hear these strong shifts of Western style, then this Middle Eastern thing, and then Andrew dancing right on top of it. Mm, just great. And the point is not lost here. Andrew is of Lebanese background. You mentioned the music director and composer, or Matthias is Israeli. Adam, you are of Eastern European Jewish background. Was that a point of identification among all of you in collaborating on this show? Yeah, I guess I'll, I'll speak to it a little bit. The relationships that between Adam and I and Orr and I kind of, for this show, seem to have come in into my life in a in like an organic trajectory i met or collaborating with another musician that or and i both know dave eggar phenomenal cellist and brought or on to almost the the precursor to this show which was a a cabaret style show that i called andrew nimmer and friends and so when adam and i started thinking about putting something like this together, uh, which I'd never done before. I've never, never tried to, to write a complete retelling of my life, let alone dance it out. And the group of friends that I was playing with or seemed like the, the best person to bring in. I couldn't get over how consistently or during our conversations would talk about your struggles with identity, which seems so idiosyncratic and specific. I mean, how many of us know a Lebanese tap dancer struggling within the context of the elite black tap dance community? I mean, it's so specific. And yet, Orr kept talking about the ways in which identity struggles are pervasive in his Israeli upbringing. 
and he really connected to it in that way. And then for me, I think my biggest connection points happened around this idea of if you're in a certain zone, how personally people take work. It's not necessarily directly coming from my upbringing, though I'm sure that informs it, but there's this way in which personal relationships and how you see the world and the work that you make start to become very indistinct from each other. You know, in a rehearsal process, I'm loving, you know, my friendship, my collaboration, my thought process with a a partner, all of those things kind of exist in this stew. And it's so hard, you know, I, I, I know you can kind of unpack them and say this, these parts are my friendship and these parts are our work and collaboration, but often they just sort of lay on top of each other. And I think that really happens in Andrew's life at various points. And I really connected to it because I understood it and I understood how hard it is to unpack it. And when things go wrong, I understood, you know, if it goes wrong in the working relationship, it goes wrong in the personal relationship. And so that that pain and that the joy of when it all comes together was, I think, my biggest connection point. Director Adam Copeland and tap virtuoso Andrew Nemmer. We'll return with more of our conversation in just a moment. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. If you are just joining us, my guests are tap virtuoso Andrew Nemmer and director Adam Copeland. They've collaborated to bring Rising to the Tap to the art farm at Serenby tonight through Saturday. Earlier, Andrew Nemmer mentioned that he had never imagined the chapters in his life would become part of a tap show story. And here, Adam Copeland explains how they decided which parts of Nemer's saga to highlight on stage. To some degree, like any, you know, any performer who's performed on professional stages for 20 plus years, I mean, Andrew's performed in, at Lincoln Center and at Kennedy Center and just, you know, all over the globe. And so, you know, if you sit down with somebody and you kind of open up your iPhone and press record and listen to the stories, I mean, there's a lot. I've been here. I've done this. I've worked with these people. And I I knew the big contours, but we had to get hours upon hours of, you know, the kind of backstage stories and backstage drama. And then at that point, once we had it sort of all out on paper, there was really a question of what is this really, really about? And the thing that kept coming back is this transition this tension between insider and outsider. It's so pervasive in in virtually every story Andrew tells. You know, kind of, what does it mean to arrive in the U.S. and have immigrant outsider feelings? And then what does it mean to sort of get a taste 
of what a vision of truly being an insider would be. And then what does it mean to become an insider and have all those feelings and then kind of go to the furthest extreme, betrayal and outsider, and then have a way of reconciling all of these and redefining it even is, is, is pretty much the arc of the show. And I think that's, it was when we had that insight of insider, outsider into kind of redefinition of the terms that everything slotted into place. So, Andrew, you are actor and storyteller as well as dancer here. I would think that the emotional demands are tremendous. I mean, you've got the physical demands of your art form with tap, and then you're telling these deeply personal stories within a theatrical context. Would you explain the way you demonstrate these different chapters alongside and through tap dance? Sure. So I came up as a tap dancer learning and understanding how tap dance can be a vehicle for storytelling. Even if there aren't any words, the way the dancers that I was around as I was coming up would talk about the dance in a rehearsal room or in a, in a practice situation was the same way that I heard writers talk about writing or talk about a story. You know, for every dance, there's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end. There are reference points to other dancers and other kind of musical vocabulary that come up that draw people in and share how much you know about the dancing with your audience. So before I started to develop this show with Adam, I had played around with starting to talk while tap dancing, simply on account of the fact that I wanted to try and find ways to share all the things that I knew with an audience that wouldn't be able to see it without having another doorway in. And so that was, that was my first step into, you know, tap dancing plus storytelling. This show, thanks to Adam's guidance, kind of takes that idea to a level that I'm even sure I would be able to, to get through when, when I talk to Adam about possibly doing something like this. It's been a tremendous, a tremendous journey. It's, it's a task. It's a very, very heavy lift. It's something that I feel a lot of resistance in my body when I first come to come to do it on account of the lift, going back through and having to encounter some of the harder stories of one's life over and over and over again in, through the rehearsal process. And then again, on, on the stage is not necessarily the thing that I think one would ask for on a, on a normal situation, but it has been exceptionally fruitful for me in my life, for the people around me, and I think for, for the audiences that have seen the show so far. Can you give us one more example, Adam, of a musical insert or a moment from the show perhaps describing that insider joy. Absolutely. This is 
a moment, one of the things that becomes a through line through the show is early in his life, Andrew has a moment with Greg Hines, who became a very important uncle-like figure for him and a mentor throughout the time that they were together. And one of the refrains that Greg Hines used to say to Andrew is, dance it out. Meaning that if for Greg Hines, he was saying dance is a language, dance is a way people express themselves. And if you have something that you're working on, you know, some people process it verbally, dancers process it through the dance. And in a sense, that becomes this culmination of Andrew figuring out a lot of the issues in his life around dance. He figures them out through dance. And this is a number that tries to capture that. some of the acrobatics and the pyrotechnics and footwork that were going on, but that you get a sense of the kind of lead in and then Andrew exploding with his feet. And fortunately, I got to see it in 2019. Oh, great, great, great. Yeah, so you know, you know what we're talking about. Oh, yes. Andrew, we've heard the names Jimmy Slide, Gregory Hines, Savion Glover, you were mentored by some of the greatest tap dancers in history. How have you gone on to mentor the next generation of tap dancers? What advice do you give them? Oh, man. I think there's such a, a plethora of interest and excitement from younger dancers today that for me, I just like to sit back and see what they're going to do. On the other hand, the knowledge and the wisdom that I gained from my mentors, I feel a very distinct responsibility to share, but not to impose. At that point, the advice really, it's to be able to walk alongside someone and say, yeah, no, this is, this is part of what this thing can be. Well, it sounds to me you encourage your mentees to dance it out. Yeah. That's it. That's it. Tap virtuoso Andrew Nemmer and director Adam Copeland. Rising to the Tap will be performed at the Art Farm at Serenby tonight through Saturday. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org. Today marks the observance of Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Remembrance Day, and the animated film Charlotte tells the story of a young Jewish artist killed in the Holocaust. The animated documentary was screened as part of the Atlanta Jewish Film Festival in February. I spoke with the film's producer, Julia Rosenberg, and here she discusses the 
brilliant unsung artist who inspired her. She was the sort of woman who would run into a burning house to save people because that's just what you do. The film is returning to Atlanta tomorrow, April 29th, for a limited run at the Terror Theater on Cheshire Bridge Road. You can learn more and listen back to my interview with Rosenberg on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. Tomorrow at 11 a.m. we'll hear about the Atlanta Opera's new production of The Revolution of Steve Jobs, opening at the Cobb Energy Performing Arts Center this weekend. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Special thanks to all of you who contributed during our spring membership campaign. Thank you for making this listener-funded WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.